This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. So I'll be reading from John 12, and we'll be beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word today and we submit ourselves to your word. We ask that you would speak to us from your word. We ask that you would open our eyes that we might understand you, that we might grasp who you are and what you've done uh, for us today, Lord. We pray that you would reveal, you talk about light here, so we pray that you would shine your light in darkness and that we would understand who you are and that we respond to who you are and what you've done today. Lord, I pray you'd fill me with the Spirit and empower me to be able to communicate the truth of this Scripture to the folks gathered here today, Lord. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's kind of a long passage of Scripture, and this passage of Scripture, the context of it, is Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He's just had what's known as the triumphal entry. He's entering the last week of his life as he comes to Passover for the last time, a Jewish festival. And the people have welcomed him and have received him with great joy. The verses that that come right before this, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and the people are gathered, perhaps by the thousands, and they are cheering and they are welcoming him. They have palm branches and they are waving these palm branches, which served kind of like a national flag. They were the symbol of Israel, and particularly they were tied to military victory. And so they were waving them and welcoming him and calling him king, the king of Israel. The the people of Israel are under Roman rule, and so they hope that Jesus is the king that will come and free them, that Jesus is the king that will come and push off their oppressors, the Roman government, and, uh, and grant them all freedom. But the problem is, as we read on, we're going to find out that he's not the kind of king that they expect. And the same people that are shouting, Hosanna, we welcome you, King Jesus. We welcome you to Jerusalem. Those same people crying, Hosanna, which is Lord save us. They yell Hosanna, but in a few days from this passage, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. They're going to turn from welcoming him to calling for his death. Because he isn't the kind of king that they desire, that they anticipate. He's not living by their script, and he's responding in a way they don't, they don't desire. And he's going to start revealing that right in the passage that we just read. Because what happens here is some Greeks, that is some Gentiles, people that weren't Jews, come to him. That's the beginning of this passage that we started today. They come to him, and they, they come to Philip, rather, verse 21, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus said to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what we're going to see in this passage today, that for the whole Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my hour, but now the world is coming to him, these Gentiles come to him, a Gentile is a non-Jew, they begin to come to him, and he says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time. And so here in the passage we just read, he's going to talk about what does this mean that my hour has come? And the first thing it means is it's the hour of his glory. It's the hour of glory. It's time for me to be glorified. He said, what does that mean? It means here it's time for me to receive honor. It's time for Jesus to receive honor. Now, the people talking to him probably assume, well, of course, we just saw you come into town. Everybody's cheering. They're waving the palm branches. You're receiving honor. But he's talking about something very different because look what he says next. Here's the king they weren't expecting. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he, he says, my hour has come, and then he starts using this agriculture metaphor, this agriculture picture. He talks about wheat, and he says, you know, wheat won't produce more unless the seed dies and is placed in the ground, so to speak, and then it bears, it grows more wheat, it bears more fruit is the analogy he uses. So he's beginning to tell them that he has come to die. He's beginning to talk about himself in terms of death. It's just a few days before he'll be crucified in John's story right here. And so he's revealing he's not a political king, but he's one who must die. And he must die for there to be fruit. In other words, he must die for life to be spread. For others to have life, he must die. And it is the hour for that to happen. And the very proof that what he says is true is the fact that we're sitting in this room today. We are part of that fruit. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, then you're part of that fruit. That Jesus' death has made a difference in your life. The church has been born, and throughout the ages, the church has been alive with people coming to Christ. So it's the hour of His glory, but it's not a kingly coronation. It's not a military parade. He's not going to throw off a political authority at this time in Israel, but He's going to die. And by dying, He's going to bear fruit. That is, He's going to give life to others. Now, He's determined to die, but I love the honesty of John's portrayal here. Because while Jesus is totally going to do everything the Father sent Him to do, there is this human, emotional um, statement that He makes. Jesus is fully God, and He's fully man. But look at what He says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's saying on the hour of my death, he says something similar the night before his death in Gethsemane. But he says, my soul is troubled. I'm stirred up on the inside. You know, his emotions, I'm, un- I'm unsettled, he's saying. I'm stirred up. Because he knows what's coming in front of him. Not just the brutal death of a crucifixion, being nailed to a cross and left to hung there until one dies. It's not just that, but the Bible says that our sins were placed on Jesus and that when He's dying on the cross, God the Father pours out His judgment and His wrath and His condemnation on God the Son. So God judges our sins by by punishing Jesus, His own Son. God punishes sin and God receives the punishment for our sin. That's what he's saying. He knows that is an indescribable suffering. And so here he's saying, God the Son is talking to God the Father, my soul is troubled. It's God wrestling with God as he realizes what's in front of him. caused one writer to say, the gospel may be simple, but it is not superficial. It may be free, but it is not cheap. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus does, that message costs Jesus' very life and a suffering that is indescribable. And in that moment, Jesus prays the most powerful prayer anyone can pray. And I want to suggest this be our prayer today too, as we follow Christ. Look look at the prayer He prays in verse 28. Father, glorify Your name. That's a request. So He's saying, my heart is unsettled. But God, this is the hour. This is the reason I've come here. Father, this is the reason I've come here. Glorify your name. What does that mean? His name is his character, his person. Glorify is to honor. So God, honor yourself. 
honor your name, glorify yourself in me. That is, I want to live in a way, I want to go through this so that honor will be given to you. Jesus is emptying himself. Jesus is submitting himself. Jesus is gladly responding to his mission, what God has called him to do. And he's praying, God, would you glorify your name? And God responds, there's a voice. Verse 28, voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. What God is saying is all that the Son has done, all that Jesus has done, has brought glory, has brought honor, recognition, attention to to the Father, renown of the Father. And now He's saying, I will glorify it. So through Jesus' death and through Jesus' resurrection, the Father will be honored. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's pouring out His heart here. He's defining His mission. What's His hour? He's come to die. That's why He's come. God has come to earth the person of Jesus, to die for us. He not only defines his mission here, but which is to glorify God by giving his life to bear fruit, but he says something about our mission and about us as well. Look what he says, verse 25. He's, he's just said, you know, about the wheat falling to the earth, dies, uh, and bears fruit, the, the wheat bearing fruit, describing himself. But then he goes on, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says something about us. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there you will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he makes this statement about loving one's life and hating one's life. The person who loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now what is he saying? Are we supposed to hate ourselves? Well, that's not what he's saying. He's speaking in hyperbole, speaking in extreme terms to make a point. And he's speaking in terms that really are, there's an implied comparison here. If we, we love our life compared to our love for God, or if we hate our life in this world, if we, if we, you know, hate our life, the things of this world will keep it for eternal life. So he's making a, he's drawing some kind of comparison between how we view God and how we view ourselves. And he says the person who loves his life, that is the person who grasps and hangs on to his life, the person that lives for himself or herself, the person that is motivated by selfishness, the person that's living for their world so that everything goes their way, that person will lose their life in eternity. But the person who hates his life compared to God, that is the person who gives up his life, the person who takes his hands off his life, the person who trusts God with his life, the person who dies to himself, that person will keep his life, will receive eternal life, is what he says. And and that's reflected in that prayer. Father, glorify your name. So when we pray, God, glorify your name, we're saying, Lord, we're letting go of our lives. And we're saying, God, would you do anything you want in our lives to bring honor to you? We're letting go of our lives. We're not grasping and hanging on to everything about us, but we're opening our hands so that we ultimately may be hang, we may hang on to you. We love you more than our life itself. God, glorify yourself in us. That is a kind of death. You know, when he's talking about when, when wheat dies, when the, the, then the seed can grow, he's talking about himself. Jesus will die so that there will be life. An abundant fruit. Many people will be saved. But this is true about us as well. That for us to experience life 
It requires death. Death to our preferences. Death to our ways. Death to our life script, our plans. What we thought everything would work out life like. Death to our expectations and openness to God. That is life. And a lot of us didn't come into the Christian faith expecting that. Because we misunderstood the message. Or the message wasn't explained clearly, perhaps. But oftentimes people come into the Christian faith thinking, well, this is about God making my dreams come true. This is about God completing me. This is about God orienting Himself around me such that He makes my life better. He does make our life better for sure. But we can sort of think that God has come to fulfill our desires. God has come to prosper us. And He does prosper our souls, to be sure. But it doesn't mean that God comes to orient Himself around the way we want our circumstances to go. Rather, just the opposite. It's opening ourselves and saying, God, would You have Your way in me? God, would You, Father, would You glorify Your name in my life? Would You take whatever, would You do whatever it takes in my life to conform me to the image of Christ? Would You do whatever it takes in my life to bring attention to You? Would you do anything in my life that would make you bigger in my eyes and in the eyes of others and me smaller in my eyes and the eyes of others? Dying precedes fruitfulness is what Jesus says. That's the victorious Christian life. The victorious Christian life is that by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, I am dying to myself and I'm experiencing the life of God in me. And through me. That's, that's the glory of the Christian life. And so that means that sometimes things go great, just like I would want them. And in those times, I praise God for, the, for His favor on my life. And sometimes life goes terrible, and we suffer, and we can't explain things that happen, and it's confusing and discouraging. And at that time, we look to God and say, you're everything, we don't understand this, but we empty ourselves, we know that you love us, and we just trust you in the midst of this. And Father, glorify yourself in my suffering. And that's life as well. That's life as well. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, I die every day. And what did he mean? Did he die and have a physical resurrection daily? No. He only died physically one time. But I died every day. He, he, he died to himself. He, he experienced difficulty and challenges that just felt like death at points to him. This is how one commentator commented on Paul's statement, I die every day, and I found this helpful. He said, through a combination of inward struggles, how's this for our top four, top five, however many is here, inward struggles, trying circumstances, opposition from the enemies of the gospel, and wrestling with our God-permitted weaknesses, we, like Paul, are to learn to die every day. How do we learn to die every day? How do we hate our lives, so to speak, that is offered up to God so that we experience His real life? How do we do that? Well, God often works through inward struggles. Hey, I'd prefer to have no inward struggles. (laughs) But that's not life. And God uses those to change us and to give us His life. Trying circumstances... Opposition from people, the enemies of the gospel. Wrestling with our weaknesses. God permitted weaknesses. I'd rather not have weaknesses. But it's in those weaknesses that the life of God is ours. It's in those weaknesses that God bears more fruit through us. 
It's in that time. Another picture he uses is a pruning. It's a cutting off of a branch so that there can be more growth and more health and more life. This is the Christian life. And it's not the one that's portrayed popularly sometimes, but it's the biblical one. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be my uh, follower, then if you want to serve me, then you must follow me. Anyone who serves me must follow me. If you want to be a servant of Christ, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Him, then we realize that He died so that we may have life. And now our calling is to die to experience His life as well. I mean, what struggle are you facing today? What circumstance trying circumstance, what opposition, what weakness, what challenge, what difficulty are you facing today? In what way is God calling you to to die in some way that you may experience life and bear fruit in Him? I was thinking about this and like, what ways does God do this in my life? I thought of one, just one category. I thought about thinking through some criticism I had received. And uh, we all receive criticism, you know, some of us all the time, some of us occasionally. Uh, but we, we all receive that. And I was thinking, boy, criticism is a way that God wants to bring a dying to myself. What did Paul say? I die every day. A dying to myself so that I can experience his life and bear fruit. I was thinking, if somebody brings you a critical word, a a concern, a criticism, a gripe. Maybe they bring it with an attitude. Maybe they bring it very graciously. It doesn't matter. But if they bring, well, it matters, but not for the sake of this illustration. If they bring a criticism, I I was thinking there's ways I can respond to that. First of all, if it's true, if I agree with it, if it's accurate, if it's an area of sin that my wife or a friend or one of my kids or somebody's bringing to me, if it's an area of sin then I get to die to myself. I, I, can, I can go before the Lord and ask forgiveness and repent and die to myself to receive forgiveness from Him and others. And that's life-giving. That's wonderful. Maybe it's not an area of sin. Maybe it's just you know an area of weakness or limitation in my life that someone brings a criticism. And it reflects not sin, but it reflects just a limitation in me. Well, I can take that and I can try to grow and change and ask for help. And that's life that comes from that. I thought, what about if I disagree with the criticism? What if I view it as unfair, inaccurate, um, unjust, not true, something like that? Something I just disagree with, but someone has still got a, um, a view of criticism towards me. Well, I get to die then too. There I don't die to my ways, my thoughts. There I get to die to my love of the approval of others. I get to die to wanting to be thought well of or wanting to be understood. I get to die to the idea of they must see it my way. I get to die to the idea that uh, you know not only they must see it my way, but they must agree and acknowledge, and they must hear my defense of why I disagree, and they must come to a grand conclusion that, oh, wise one, indeed, indeed, my criticism was uh, wrong, wrong, wrong. So see, I'm dying either way. And the good news is that that brings the life of Christ. This is true in a thousand different struggles and circumstances and oppositions and challenges and weaknesses and limitations that we face. God wants to bring life 
Hating our life, as he uses that word compared to God, is to humble ourselves before God and trust Christ. So Jesus says he's going to die and it's going to bring great fruit. And we are that fruit. God has given us forgiveness, given us new life. He's given us a new heart. And then secondly, we follow him in our lives. We follow him. That means our dying and our coming to life by his grace as well. It's his hour of glory. He will receive honor through his death and resurrection, the king that no one expected. Secondly, it's the hour of judgment. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. So his death is going to bring a judgment to this world. Now, how is that? Well, look at verse 48 down towards the end. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So he's saying, my word, my teaching, my life, ultimately my death and resurrection, it brings a judgment to people. It brings a judgment. We're accountable for what we do with his teaching. We're accountable for what we do with his death and his resurrection. And we will all stand before God one day and we will give an account. Did we believe in Jesus Christ? Did we trust what he did for us on the cross? Did we believe in him and receive his forgiveness? Did we resist him and reject him like many did in his day? Or did we believe in him and receive from him what he did for us? So he's saying, my very words are given to me by the Father. I'm speaking truth. And how people respond to that if they resist it, that is the judgment upon them. They're, they're writing their own judgment, as it were, because they're resisting the truth of God. So he talks about that. There is a, there is a, a judgment that comes. His death is a dividing line. It's a dividing line of judgment from those who will believe and receive what he's done and those who will resist what he's done. And we'll go on loving our lives, ruling our lives, loving ourselves, choosing other options and other gods and, and, and ultimately resisting him or whether we will humble ourselves and receive his love and his death for us. So, now is the judgment of this world. Look what else he says. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's referring to Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So it's a judgment upon Satan that he's bringing as well. Now it's not a final judgment. The book of Revelation shows that, that Satan and his followers are thrown into what John sees as a, as a lake of fire in the vision that he has at the end of Revelation. So that day is coming in the future. But something happens right here in now. His judgment, his death, his hour, something happens there that causes the ruler of the world, that causes Satan to be cast out. Something happens in Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection that changes the, the power and the ruler of darkness. There's something that decisively happens. And he's talking about his death here, verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we often think of the ruler of this world, Satan, being defeated by Jesus' resurrection, and he is. But here he's also defeated by his death because he says, when I'm lifted up, which sounds like resurrection, but he says here that is to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So does lifted up mean resurrection or does it mean lifted up on a cross to show how he was going to die? I think that's what it means, but both are true. His death and resurrection defeat the enemy. So that's what he says, that there is a, a power that happens in his death and he defeats 
the power of Satan. He comes against the power of darkness. Now, we don't want to overemphasize Satan. I don't really ever even talk about Satan unless he appears in the Scripture we're teaching. So we're not, if you're a guest here, we're not, uh, uh, you know, uh, like cowering in, in views of Satan all the time um, at all, just when the Scripture mentions him. But the Scripture mentions him here, and it mentions him as the one who is defeated the one who is defeated by the death of Jesus Christ, the the one who loses something of his power and loses something of his opposition to God's people that happens decisively at the cross. In the book of Revelation, John says this in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, John said, the same author here says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers, that's Satan, Satan means accuser, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, that's Jesus' death, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This really ties into what we're reading here. The church, the people of God, they they go forth and conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death is conquering by the word of their testimony, speaking what Jesus has done for us, and they love not their lives to death. So they, they offered their lives to Jesus And this is how the gospel, the power of the good news, goes forth. The church suffers in this age, but the church also has victory in this age by the blood of Christ. What Jesus does gives the people of God power to tell the message of Jesus so that more people meet him. Look what happens about it when it talks about the ruler of this world being cast out. The next verse in John 12 uh, John twelve thirty one. the ruler of this world be cast out, verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So he says, Satan will be defeated through my death, and what's the evidence of that? I'll bring people to myself. So we're not only the fruit of his death, but we're also like the victory, the spoils of his victory, if we could say it that way. When somebody wins and they have a victory uh, in a battle, they often take spoils, they take possessions, they take stuff that represents their defeat of another city or another army or something like that. Well, we are the ones. Satan is cast out. His rulership is overcome by the power of Jesus. And Jesus brings people to himself. He draws people to himself. So we are his victory spoils, we could say. He, he won by his death and by his resurrection. <clears throat> now, sometimes this is confusing because we read a verse like this and we read the verse in Revelation and we say, the Bible says that Jesus' death defeated Satan. But as I look around, it looks to me like he is alive and well. I mean, we can look at individuals and say, that I see horrendous evil that individuals are doing. I see horrendous evil of of individuals abusing other people, killing other people, harming other people, acting in evil ways. And it looks to me like Satan is alive and well. Or we look not only at a micro level, but a macro level. We look at nations that are, that are um, leaders in nations committing genocides, just killing whole races of people. Terrorism, we just see on a mass scale sometimes evil. And you think, boy, if that's not the work of Satan, obviously it's people making choices. But if that's not inspired by Satan, he, he looks like he is alive and well in a big way and in a small way as we see evil all around us. 
So if he's really defeated, why is he doing so much? Well, I think the way to understand that is in the cross, Jesus does something to defeat the enemy, but his final defeat comes later. A good illustration that I've heard used before uh, to explain this comes from World War II. And it's the difference in D-Day of World War II and V-Day, which was the day of celebrating victory um, when the... uh, when there was a conceit of uh, of loss and victory declared then. Let me read you a little account that helps explain. This is a good explanation of how Jesus' death defeats the power of evil now, and yet there's still coming a day when he'll ultimately reign in victory. Um, D-Day was when the Allied forces landed in Normandy and established a beachhead. The strategizing generals on both sides recognized that the outcome of the war, that is the outcome of World War II, was decided on that fateful day in June 1944. They understood that if the Nazis had driven the Allies back into the sea, they would have won the war. But because the Allied armies prevailed at Normandy, they sealed the eventual doom of the Nazi cause. But between D-Day and V-Day, marking the surrender of the enemy and the Allies' liberation of all of Europe. So that was the victory day uh, when there there was um, uh, Nazi surrender. So uh, between D-Day and V-Day, there'd be many months of suffering and struggle. There'd be horrendous battles as the Allied armies, little by little, push back the Nazi forces. The cross and resurrection were God's D-Day. God and Jesus fought and won the decisive battle. Although Satan is raising havoc, his power has been broken, and Christ through the church is driving back the forces of darkness. God's V-Day isn't here yet, but because of God's triumph on D-Day, we know how it will all end. So God has defeated Satan in a decisive battle, but that ultimate victory will be declared when Christ returns and Satan is forever condemned to eternal torment and his power, his ways, his influence will cease forever. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow. That day is coming. But until that day, the decisive battle has been one, and now the gospel is going forth, the good news is going forth, that Jesus saves people. He forgives us. He gives us new life. We've received that, and we're called to tell others about that. And as that happens, darkness is being pushed back, and the light of God's love is going forward in these days. Until that V-Day, there will be struggle, there will be suffering, there will be pain, there will be sorrow. There will be unexplained circumstances. There will be difficulty. But he is ultimately defeated, Satan is. And Jesus is victor. So it's a day of judgment. The cross brings judgment. And lastly, it's the hour of decision. It's the hour of Jesus' glory, his death. It's the hour of judgment. It's the hour of decision. Look at verse 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
What Jesus is saying is he's telling everyone the truth of what he's going to do. We have it recorded for us, and we have the advantage to be able to look back and know what actually happened, that he died and rose. But he's saying, I'm giving you light. You're in darkness. When you're in darkness, you can't see. You don't know what's in front of you. You don't have direction. You're blinded. But Jesus is saying, I'm bringing light to you. I'm opening your eyes. I'm telling you who I am, Jesus is saying. I'm telling you my mission. I'm telling you my purpose. And so respond while the light is with you. He says it further in verse 44. Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. Whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. He's talking about the Father. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. He is coming. He came, rather, to forgive us of our sins. That's darkness. To open our eyes to the truth of God because we were in darkness. To give us new life. To take us from death to life. To give us eternal life so that we could live forever with Christ. Um, once He returns or once we die, to be with Him forever. He does these things for us. This is the light, the message, the truth that He's giving. And He's charging people. He's, we could even say warning people to respond to the life, to the light. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. That is, believe in Christ. He is the light so that you may become forgiven, so that you may be reconciled with God. It is a time to make decision, is what he is saying. It's a time to turn from to Christ. And if you're here today and you've never done that, then you are in the darkness. That is, you're in the darkness of your own sin. We're all sinners. But until you've believed in Jesus and believed that He is God and that He died on the cross for your sins, and you turn from your sins and you realize you need forgiveness for your sins, until you turn to Him and believe in Him, taking your hands off your life and entrusting your life to Him as the Savior, as the King, as the ruler of your life, as the gracious Savior who gave His life for you. Until you do that, you're in darkness. And a lot of people assume, well, I have time. You know, the light shining, it makes sense to me right now. I'll respond later. But there's not always a later. Sometimes people don't live as long as they think. And here's, the, here's what happens more frequently, is that we're in the light now and it makes sense and we're sort of interested and we're curious. And we say, I'll come back to this and address it later. I don't really need religion now. I'll wait till I'm having a problem or a crisis or I'm older and I really need some religion. But right now, I'm, you know, it's interesting, it makes sense, but I'm going to put the pause button on. The truth is that dark, the way darkness works is the light shines, but oftentimes by we walk right back into darkness and the, the later never comes. There's never an interest later. There's never a curiosity later. There's never a sense of need later. When the light was shining, we ignored it. We closed our eyes to the light and remained in darkness. And it's presuming upon the mercy of God that we'll see that again, we'll desire that again. We must respond to God. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I urge you to come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness. Receive new life. Receive the light. Others of us are here are believers. And you know what Jesus says in this passage? He says that we're to walk in the light as believers as well. And sometimes we can walk in the darkness. That's what happened with some of those who listened to him. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, those were his enemies. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Did you hear that? He's saying there were people that heard about Jesus and they really believed, but they wouldn't admit it. Because if everyone knew they were in the light, the people in the synagogue who didn't like Jesus would push them out. The leaders would kick them out. So why didn't they say anything? Well, they didn't say anything because John says they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think we can all feel the sting of that statement, can't we, if you're a Christian here today? At least at some time you've experienced that. I have. There's a sting to me when I read that. What what, what he's saying is these people were in the light. They believed the light. They responded, but they kept it shrouded in darkness because they loved the approval of others. That mattered more than what God thought. They loved, it mattered more to them what other people thought about them than what God thought. They already had the approval of God. We already have the approval of God. But sometimes we can be more concerned about the approval of other people. And so he's simply saying, because of that love, they, they never admitted, they never came forth, they never acknowledged, they never identified with Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus comes to shed his, to give his life, to be raised, to defeat the power of sin, to defeat the power of the devil, to give us new life so that we can see that and we can let go of our lives and that we can experience this kind of victory, the kind of victory that's characterized, that's characterized by letting our life go and even in the midst of difficulty, receiving him and his power and the power of his life in us and through us to sustain us and acknowledging him recognizing his defeat of the power of the enemy, his gathering and drawing a people to himself and telling other people about him, acknowledging him, basically praying this prayer, verse 28, Father, glorify your name, which is saying, God, no matter what comes, no matter if others think ill of me, I identify with you. No matter if others judge me or mock me or reject me because they don't believe, I identify with you. God, I take my hands off my life and I say, glorify yourself in me. God, whatever it takes, have your way in me and through me. I, I just It's acknowledging, Father, glorify yourself. I recognize that through your death and through your resurrection, you have defeated the power of the enemy. And so I submit myself to you and I ask you to work through me. I ask you to bear fruit through me that I might be walking in your light, empowered by you, used by you to push back the darkness all around me by serving and helping the suffering, proclaiming the good news to the captives, speaking the truth of Jesus and the gospel to those who are in darkness so that they too may see the light. It's an overwhelming picture when we think that God took on human flesh and gave his life, that he just didn't come in in military power, overthrowing a government and setting his people free politically, but that he came in and God himself came to town in Jerusalem at this Passover to die, to give his life, to suffer and experience the judgment do us, and then to be raised from the grave and later to ascend to the right hand of the Father in victory, defeating the power of the enemy. 
so that we could follow him. Hating our lives, he says, taking our hands off our lives, submitting ourselves to his way, his will, his glory, and praying, God, glorify your name in me and through me. What a great Savior. And not only what a great mission that he has accomplished in saving us by his love and mercy and by his power granting us strength to walk in his light. Not only has he done that, but he's given us a mission to participate in as well so that we could proclaim this story, this truth to others so that they may be drawn to him, so that they may experience the same freedom and forgiveness that we have. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.